0: on The Verge. With Nashville, Tennessee being one of the hottest real estate markets anywhere in the world, wouldn't it make sense that you'd be looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client from first-time buyers to seasoned sellers. I personally chose Lisa Gaston and the Gaston Collective to represent me when I sold my house recently here in Nashville. It was at the back end of the boom where the prices got to a point where everything was starting to retract but she held firm And she delivered a great sale for me. And I'm unbelievably grateful for all the work that she put in, especially through trying and difficult times. Some of that was out of her control. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client service, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place, including me. If you're interested in finding your greatest experience in the real estate journey in Nashville, contact Lisa Gaston today and visiting compass.com. Com. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws. I can't tell how often I have conversations with clients about the difficulty in hiring talented business professionals. I tell them all the same thing. It's no different than working on your golf game. Trust your local pro. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, there's no better resource than SHR Talent. They partner with top organizations in Music City to attract, successfully close, and onboard candidates across their core competencies of accounting and finance, tech, HR, and marketing. Contact SHR Talent today, shrtalent.com, that's shrtalent.com. Remember, the future depends on your talent. Welcome to On The Verge, today's edition will be uh, myself describing And answering questions uh, based around the surprising amount of DMs that I have received on mental performance in golf. And it's been uh, basically the last year has been an abnormal amount of great play from the players that I'm so fortunate to get a chance to coach and it's a it's a beautiful thing and people are wondering like what is what is going on how are they able to do it etc etc and if if you pay it enough and I'm, I'm sure many of you are not involved in the golf teaching forums that are on Facebook and I don't really use Facebook for anything else other than these these forums to be quite honest uh, because they're so incredible and it, what it really comes down to is that with talent being a given, and what I mean by that is, is that basically everybody in the field has the capabilities and talents to win a golf tournament. It's largely a mental edge that gives the winner the trophy and the person who finished seventh and lower. You know, the the big difference is, the mental processes. Now, one of my favorite ways to look at talent comes from a great friend of mine, Stephen Yellen. He says, if you got a million dollars in the bank, you definitely have ability to do more things than somebody that has $500,000 in the bank. So we'll call the money in this conversation physical talent, what you have the ability to access. So your ATM machine card if you have only $500,000 worth of talent, so to speak, you only have access to 500000 So if there, you're playing against somebody who has a million dollars of talent, you, generally speaking, do not have a very high chance of winning. But in those rare circumstances in which somebody with $500,000 worth of talent beat somebody with a million dollars worth of talent, it is clearly the, the difference is that the $500,000 talent had access to all $500,000 worth of their talent, whereas the mental processes that the million-dollar talented person had only gave them access to $350,000. Well, what does that mean? Essentially, your outcome in any event, probably on and off the golf course, is your talent minus the interference. And the interference can come in many different manifestations, largely fear, but it could also be uh, an argument with a loved one, uh, work stress, life stress many things. But then on top of that, you could have had a bad range session. You could be playing a golf course where if you're a right-handed golfer and your your predominant shot is a draw, uh, 11 of 18 holes have water on the left and you feel that this golf course doesn't suit you. So all of these things create a level of interference. And when that level of interference reaches a place where you don't feel what I'd call competitively golf safe the brain tries to protect you from humiliation, embarrassment, pain of shooting a high score, hitting a bad golf shot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it could also just be your general confidence in what it is that you're doing could be at a loss as well. But at the end of the day, When playing the best golf that you can play, it usually starts like this. So you get to your your golf tournament, and you go into the process of warming up. And what I would recommend in a warm-up is, at first, to just hit shots, not even necessarily to a target, just to try to feel the foundations of your golf swing. So just for my purposes, I would I would probably say I would begin with uh, a lob wedge or a sand wedge and make long, slow, full swings, maybe only hitting it 45 yards, 50 yards. And I'm just trying to kind of get a feel for my pivot, which tends to, as I'm getting older, to not get as deep. I want to make sure that my Shoulder my my right. I'm a left-handed golfer, so my my right shoulder or the lead shoulder gets over top of the trail knee, and I want to feel myself being able to flow all the way to a full follow through, and I might even hit you know up to twelve slow motion wedges where I kind of feel where my golf swing is, and hit my spots. Like I said, I will tend as I'm getting older to under pivot. A player who under pivots usually gets the club over the plane, and hits bigger than normal cuts, which is what I'm experiencing when I struggle, my ball starts a little less right and goes a little more left. And that I would probably say that gets me the most in tournament play. But the other piece to that is if I misread my error and I don't get all the way behind it, I can get stuck out in front and hit a ball that goes left to left for me or for a golfer, right to right. So I'm always conscious of making sure that I'm aimed correctly. My ball position tends to drift back, getting my shoulder shut, and that's the death of me. So I'm constantly paying attention to ball forward, shoulder slightly open, and then feel my positions. As I go about it, I will then begin the process of imagining that I'm hitting the actual shot on the golf course. And that is the beginning of one identifying where I am today in a vague sense, not in a specific sense. But if I sense that my fade is not fading, it's turning into a pull, I will probably, if it's solid, I will probably choose to play that shot instead of concerning the part of my brain with perfection, that prefrontal cortex I will dance with the girl that I am taking to the to the dance. I won't try to manipulate it. Now, if I got a hook going, uh, that's a little bit different. But if I am starting my ball on the line and it's just not fading back, I'll probably just go with that. So, then what does that leave with us? Like the very first phase of mental preparation is the ability to have full acceptance of the outcome. Before you hit the shot, if I had known the value of this when I was a junior golfer, who knows where I would be at this particular point. Um, It's so important to get up over any particular shot and know that any particular outcome is possible because that's actually the truth. And you have to be okay with it because when you start with a full level of acceptance, this is phase one Of your ability to play the best golf you can play. It does not mean that you are guaranteed to play the best golf you've ever played. It gives you the best chance. Here is where we run into most people's issue it's early in the phase the control. You have very little control of the outcome. Once that ball is hit, there's very little control. But the mind wants control. And more than anything, the ego who has spent hours upon hours upon hours hitting golf shots believes it is entitled to hit great golf shots. The entitlement piece of I have worked this hard, I am this, I am that, I can, I will, all of those things create a level a low level of acceptance in the in your shot and the lower the level of acceptance in the shot the more stress and anxiety builds up in the mind just prior to the swing so with a high level of acceptance the next phase of this is to be able to set into the ball with the same level of tension in your shoulders and your arms that you would if you were standing there in your golf posture with no golf club in your hand. Stephen Young calls this the setting one position, because it's actually the, be- the first physical place of mental dominance. And it's easier to get into that relaxed shoulder, relaxed arm, relaxed hand sensation at a dress with a full level of acceptance of the outcome before the shot gets hit. It's a domino effect, folks. One thing leads to the next. The next thing leads to that. If you skip a step, you do not have it. So, one, a high level of acceptance of the outcome. You set into the shot with the same softness you would if you stood there with no golf club in your hand. In my opinion, from my experience playing golf, I play with a high level of tension. And that usually means from a player who is gets ahead of himself. So, nobody's perfect. I have a tendency to get ahead of myself the, that is so critical to be where your feet are, to stay present. Now, I've been very fortunate to play a lot of great golf, and I've won 14 times as a professional, and although nothing of any substance like a PGA Tour event or any tour, so to speak, but to have competed against other professionals in my section in different events in my 25 years of coaching golf that's a that's not a bad playing career but what's fascinating is I journal my rounds and every single round that I've played where I've competed and won they all say the exact same thing it is absolutely staggering now yes you it's impossible for you to create the environment exactly the same every time. But what it tells me is that there are things that happen early that dictate and give me the best possible outcomes after. So after I have what is called set one and I feel soft, that is one of the first feelings that I have written down in my books of winning events or playing spectacularly low rounds of golf, either business golf or et cetera, is that that particular day, my hands felt soft on the golf club. I felt like there was more ability for me to feel the golf club You know, work correctly in my hand, squaring the face through the ball. There's less saving. There's less tension. That's the first thing that jumps out. So I generally have to work hard on staying soft at address. The next piece, and this is largely Debbie Cruz's information, um, which is to keep your eyes focused on the target in the setup phase, eight and a half seconds for every 10. Most people have this backward where they're setting up to the ball and then looking. If you set up to the ball, then look, No matter where you look, that's where you think you're aimed. But if you walk into the shot with your acceptance level high, shoulders, arms, and hands soft, and your eyes intently looking at the target glance down at the ball just for a second to place the club behind it, look back out to the target and set your feet, it is so hard for you to not be aimed where you're wanting to go because you're looking at the target. And the target is not the ball. It is either a specific spot in the fairway, a specific spot onto the green, including that could be the flag stick. All of these things are critical. That is what we would call setting the intention. What is the intent of this shot? Very important that you're, you're giving your brain the specific directions to perform the task you want it to do. In my opinion, once you have set into the ball, it is the lack of visualization, the lack of clear intention, and or, all these kind of go together, or the lack of commitment, to the shot that you're asking yourself to hit. This is possibly the most important piece, is the level of commitment to the intention once you've set into the shot. Hal Sutton said this in one of his podcasts is that every single bad shot that he hit, he dr- immediately can draw back to a low level of commitment to the shot selected, the intention selected. And yes, this sounds like it could take a long time to hit a golf shot. Well, the the key here is to practice this routine in a way repetitive enough to go from, I hope I can do it, shift that into, I believe I can do it, which is a higher level of trust. To then move to, I know I can do it. When you move to the no portion of the program, all of this that I've now spent the first 10 minutes describing, it flows beautifully together in a very seamless and short amount of time. But at first, when you're not performing well mentally, it feels a little mechanical. But this is just the phase of it. So now, let's keep going. We have a high level of acceptance. We are soft in the shoulders and hands as we set into the ball, eyes on the target. And we have selected the shot that we want to play. So for me, I would just say this is a 172-yard 7-iron. I see about 10 feet of right-to-left fade. So I'm picking on a specific target. We'll call it the left edge of the greenside bunker on the right side of the green and I see my ball starting there I see the apex in the sky and where the ball begins to fall to the left this then sends the information to my muscles of what I want the more vivid the picture the higher level of accuracy the brain sends to the muscles this cannot be said enough The greatest players of all time had the clearest, most vivid picture imagined in the mind prior to the shot and the highest level of commitment to the visualization. All of this is tied to the confidence that you have in your ability to do it. So you can't really ask yourself to do something more than 20% past your bell curves average, the greatest, the greatest performances in life occur while being nervous, challenging yourself up to, but no more than 20% past your best. That is super critical. Choking occurs at 21% and above. So me finding myself with a chance to win the master's is significantly higher than 20% past my threshold of talent, my belief structure. You cannot outperform your self-image by more than 20%. So that I would choke there because of the moment would be significantly higher than the money in my bank. Now that we have the acceptance level high, softness in the body, eyes on the target, committed to the shot at hand with the intention clear of what we're trying to do. All of this would be benefited by being able to hit the shot within eight seconds of the commitment time. So as soon as you have committed To the shot you wish to play, Dr. Deborah Graham has clearly shown that you are able to withhold the feel of the visual at over 90% efficiency within 8 seconds. But it has already dropped to 50% at the 10-second mark. So many of you can probably see this in some of the work that I did when I worked with Brant Snedeker, Brant w- would get to the point where he would be so mechanically bound while making his swing changes back in his days at at uh, his senior year in Vanderbilt that he couldn't pull the trigger. He'd be setting up over with too many thoughts. So when he stepped into the shot, you know, and if you're a P. Nielsen, Lynn Marriott uh, fan, Vision 54, Once he stepped out of the think box into the play box, we were trying to hit the shot within eight seconds of crossing the line. He's one of the fastest players, if not the fastest player, on the tour once he crosses over the think box commit line. Once you've committed, you cross the commit threshold into the action phase. He's as good as it gets at that. And I believe Snedeker has done a great job of maximizing the money in his bank. He's done an outstanding job. He should be super proud of himself. Super proud of him. So I know that he's, he's battling injuries and, you know, he's, he's in his early 40s now. So he feels like, you know, he's got he's to stay doubly on top of his game because the players are, that are coming out of college – are better than they've ever been. So now that we've hit the shot, herein lies one of the biggest challenges for everybody. When the shot turns out just as we intended, one of the bigger challenges that we have is because that shot was great. We choose not to celebrate it because it's what we expect. Why should I get excited over a seven iron that faded exactly as I intended? Because that's all I work on. I do not share the joy in hitting another great shot because that's what I work toward. Well, the challenge to that or the negative to that is that once the brain gets full, and that's probably around 22 or 23, your ability to remember things is largely based around emotion. So if you are not emotionalizing a great shot, you are not building a bank of great shots in your mind. Conversely, when you hit a shot, and let's just say for this particular, because we're talking about the shot that I'm hitting, let's say that instead of the ball Fading. I double crossed, I hit it on the toe, and now I've hit it long and right. And I'm now in a position that is short sighted, downhill, out of the Bermuda rough, and that is now a low level chance at an up and down par. I'm guilty as charged. I would be hot because I knew that I couldn't do that, and I failed. Therein lies one of the most challenging places for everybody who enjoys the game is you've now done your best and your best was not good enough on that shot. If I have set into the shot with a high level of acceptance, I hit the shot and my mind is, that was not what I pictured. What did I feel? that did not allow the ball to fade like I committed to. It takes a couple of seconds. The brain rewinds the tape, and it recognizes I moved off the ball slightly to help me get behind the ball. I did not recenter. The club got slightly closed due to that because I was behind the ball too much, and that was the shot. My brain would accept The failure would begin to try to remedy that on the next shot, and I would not have any emotion to it. With a low level of acceptance, my mind would go to I work so hard to hit this shot, and every single time, and there's a big word, every, which is over emotionalizing it, making it bigger than it really is, and I would beat myself up so much so that my self-image dips, the part of the brain that accesses my talent dips. So when I have to hit this soft, high lob wedge that I need to carry onto the green only three yards in the air so that it can release and trickle down to the hole with the ball sitting in a kind of a bird's nesty lie, if I'm not in a good, high level of acceptance place, where I assessed what I did and moved past it and I set up over it angry because I'm in this really difficult position, the prefrontal cortex is actively involved, completely interfering with the your talent access. So the prefrontal cortex is what allows your ATM card to not access the talent. Your prefrontal cortex is designed to keep you safe and in golf terms, safe is from the emotional and mental pain and anguish of underperforming under over a shot this if you get into this cycle it is really hard to pull yourself out of the cycle until you have played yourself out of contention out of the round that you visualized hoping would occur to you get to that place where it's kind of like stay and quit. You're you're there, you're playing, but you're not involved in it. You're not engaged in it. You have checked out. Checking out occurs a lot. We see it a lot in junior golf, probably in college golf too, where the pressure of the expectation, which is ultimately based around a number, not your performance scorecard, your actual scorecard, your mental performance scorecard is where you should be putting your your, your process handicap. So, so to speak versus the outcome, uh, handicap, that is the challenge to be able to hold all of these things together and then put them on a loop so that you continue to do them over and over again is radically imperative at the highest level of any sport, but in any, in anything, but this is, you know, this is for golf. So let's recap it again. Stepping in with a high level of acceptance. Soften the arms and the hands while staring at the target, visualizing the committed shot. Executing the shot within eight seconds of crossing the commitment line. The post-shot routine begins with probably the, the easiest way to explain this is The post-shot routine begins with the starting line of your acceptance level. And from there, the emotion that occurs from a shot that is excellent should be cheered upon inside yourself, giving it a smile, giving yourself affirmation of the hard work that you've done to help put that into memory so that it can repeat itself. Because it is easy for us to bash ourselves when we hit a bad shot that negative emotion tags all the time so if you ever wonder why people are constantly negative or they have a negative attitude or a negative outcome attitude over shots where they, i'll probably do this i always do that those are people that have emotionalized their bad so much that it becomes what's in the forefront of their mind that loop of acceptance softness commitment visualization to the to the shot that you want and then the post shot routine of the your level of acceptance of it and then rewind the tape to do it all over again are what the best players do versus the next level how do we practice this well you practice it starting with a starting point of your, your level of performance, your level of greatness on this does not always translate to a low number on the right side of the scorecard. What it does do is it allows you to shoot the lowest score you could have shot today. That is super important. Not every day did Tiger Woods shoot 64. Even the greatest of all time did not tear it up all the time. But what his mental processes allowed him to do was to shoot the lowest score he possibly could with what he brought to the table that day. When Tiger Woods said that he won with his C game, what that meant was is that his shot dispersion was slightly wider than normal and he managed to sh- aim his shot dispersion accurately so that let's say that he likes to hit a 2 yard fade and that day it was an 8 yard fade and he was really struggling square in the face at tiger standards he managed that to a point where it looked like an A game but to him, seeing the ball curve that much brought a level of disgust to his perfectionism, so to speak. But he managed himself so beautifully that he shot 68 with his C game. So when you understand what that means, that is it right there. Yes, Tiger's game is better than all of ours, for sure. But what it, what that means is, is that he was able – to manage his shot dispersion strategically at a level with a high level of acceptance and knowing that his level of acceptance could be and should be higher because his short game is also so good. So you can't lie about your confidence to yourself. Your brain really knows how truly confident you are. If you have weaknesses in your game, and you put yourself in a position to have to hit a shot out of a weakness, you can't fake the confidence and get away with it in tournament golf. Which in my opinion, which is why the Augusta National almost always produces a legendary champion because it exposes every part of the game every day, all day long. That's what we want out of our great golf courses, and that's what we demand from our great champions. So to me, of the, of all the things that I would be asking you to, to put together is understand your shot dispersion, understand how to aim your shot dispersion. When you understand your shot dispersion, you also then should have a very clear understanding of What kind of acceptance you need to have knowing that your variance between heel short short shots and toe or pull long shots has this level of dispersion. 15 yards front to back, 52 feet left to right, and then if you hit 100 shots within that shot pattern, you aim that shot pattern, so to speak, so that the most amount of balls are on the green. Because we will make more pars by hitting more greens in regulation, not trying to keep the ball below the hole. Many people don't understand that if we have a front pin and the pin is, I mean, the green is sloped from back to front, missing the green four yards short in the, either the primary cut of rough or the fairway cut of grass versus hitting it to 35 feet above the hole you are going to make way more pars or have a way lower stroke average putting down the hill from 35 feet than you will be chipping from 22 feet with four yards of carry over fairway grass or rough. That's super important to understand. Hit more greens. Get better at aiming your shot dispersion. All of these things are absolutely critical. And I would probably say most people... Their shot dispersion begins with their best shot with their iron. So, like, my max number on a 7-iron is 75. If I called that the middle of my shot pattern, that would be a lie. That is the maximum output of a good shot at 75. My actual dispersion is probably 71. 171 would be my shot dispersion shot. So if I was 175 to the hole, my shot dispersion would be likely leaning toward the ball being short of the flag. That's just the way it is. Now, if I rip one, great. But it's much better for me to play a comfortable solid seven iron and end up four yards short and six feet left than it is for me to... Choke up on a six iron, hit a slightly bigger, wider fade, bringing more dispersion into the shot. So all of these things lead to the confidence level that you have in yourself. The confidence in yourself ultimately bleeds into the process of high level of acceptance, softness in in the arms as you're staring down your target that you have visualized and committed to To hit the shot, every single one of these pieces have tentacles to it, and we could I could sit here and talk for literally twelve days nonstop about all the variables. Your job is to take this process that put we put on a loop, and then access it to how it pertains to you. That's critical. How does it pertain to you? And that's where my coaching may help people play better golf, is that I am in I am very into that situation. Many people believe that a golf lesson is virtual takes people, puts them on track, man, and you know, technically makes their golf swing perfect so that they play better golf. In all actuality, that is could not be farther from the truth. And really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get your natural speed to hit the ball in the center of the face. Figure out what that natural motion produces because the less you have to think the better you are. Keep in mind, yes, that if you're Don't have a lot of money in the bank. We do have to make technical changes. But I will oftentimes do that around your natural speed. So if your natural speed comes from an over-the-top place, because that's where you are when you're learning the game, I will do things that are vague, but yet it'll feel very, very exaggerated to get the golf club to shallow to the inside, to hit the back of the golf ball correctly. But once I have you coming into the ball, what I would say with acceptable path, and I'd call acceptable path for me, you know, if you're into track man numbers, if you're a right-handed player, negative three, five path to positive four, five. That eight degrees of path, in my opinion, you can play really great golf all the time. Knowing that a player who is, closest to 3.5 negative, or closest to 4 positive, are have a very limited ball flight choice because the 3.5 player has a bigger fade and the 4 to the right player has a bigger draw. But I'm here to tell you, Kenny Perry was an unbelievable repetitive machine hitting that sling and draw in there. And KJ Choi would just hit the most beautiful butter cut after butter cut after butter. And I think with Bruce Litsky too, just on-call fade on top of fade because that's predictable. One of the greatest keys to playing great golf is your ability to predict the distance and the curve of your golf shot. Absolutely super essential. But that's really what ends up happening. You come get a golf lesson from me. I'm bending your speed toward zero plane, not focusing on zero plane, trying to get your natural fade path into the negative one, negative 1.5, or getting your draw path to move from seven to the right to two to the right so that you keep the shot your brain naturally wants to see so that doesn't then create red flags in your brain. I don't know how to hit this shot. I don't like this shot low level of acceptance because you know you're not good at it so that you can then free up to aim your shot dispersion in a tighter window of error, which allows greater things to occur, higher levels of predictability, which then make your acceptance levels high, which allow you to stay soft, which allows you to access the most talent that you have to shoot the lowest score that you have. That is the process of all the things that I would say is that I'm, I think I get pigeonholed into being very technical as a teacher and I would say that I'm almost radically under-technical and I approach the game through the mind through the performance side of the mind to allow you to be the best golfer that you can be if you have any questions about how and why uh, I, and you can send them to my email which is virgilherring1 at iCloud.com, or you hit me up in a DM on my social media, whether it be Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. I'm easy to find there, but that's the process. Another part of the show that uh, I wanted to get into, I'm, it's, it's really uh, interesting how the visualization, the The board that you put together, your success board, the things that you'd like to accomplish in your life, the vision board. A long time ago, I watched a TED Talk by John Wooden, and I said to myself, I'm going to do a TED Talk one day, and never really put much into that other than putting it into the universe. And about six months ago, five months ago, I got a phone call saying that I had been selected to be a speaker at TEDx Old Hickory. And that is August 26th. So that is, when this comes out, that will be eight days from now uh, at the Talamore Mansion in Old Hickory, Tennessee. I will be speaking on the cha- a championship mindset to help our community it's really it, this the ted talk is about community and how to elevate our community and it's based around the elite teams what do the elite teams do the marines the navy seals the new england patriots the Alabama Crimson Tide, the, with the UT Vols, women's basketball with Pat Summit, Gino Auriemma's UConn Huskies, Phil Jackson Bulls, Phil Jackson Lakers. There has to be something. And there is a handful of things because the terminology of what it takes to be great at Apple or Microsoft or Amazon has different words than what it takes to be a great football player, basketball player, golfer. But the system and or process that is applied to success doesn't really change much. If you've seen Nick Saban's speech, if you want to be great, there just aren't that many ways to be great. There are more than one, but there aren't many ways to be great at something. So I've put together a an acronym, an eight-part acronym, that the best coaches, the best teams, the best military teams, and the best companies in the world employ on a daily basis to extract the greatness from themselves and their team. And team here can be called community. Uh, I'm I'm prom- I'm here to tell you that I'm I'm a little. I'm anticipatory, excited, which rivals nervous. And if you remember the beginning of this podcast, I tend to be—I—I I favor the anxiety side of life, not the depressive side of life. So I don't really look back and in fear. I look forward a lot, and I get ahead. So I'm trying my best to stay present. But in this in this moment. I've manifested this a long time ago. I thought about it a long time ago. And it's a moment that I dreamed of. So my goal is to go out there and crush it to the best of my ability and apply what I'm talking about today. I have to have a high level of acceptance for this outcome because it's a gigantic stage in which I've not spoken on before on a topic that veers slightly off of my expertise of coaching golf. I'm not really going to be talking about coaching golf. I'm going to be trying to elevate the community based around a lot of the things that I would say and do to elevate somebody to be a better golfer or to have a better golf team. I couldn't be more excited to do this. And it stretches me a little bit in what I've done in my life, which is, I guess, that's the progress. So I'm super excited about the opportunity to do that. And the final part of today is another one of my favorite things to talk about, which is wine. I'm heading into what I call Ryder Cup season. Ryder Cup season, for me, means that we get to do some incredible wine tasting between Europe and American wines. And these events have been such a raging success. I did one last year for Fifth Third Bank. It wasn't even the Ryder Cup. They just wanted to experience it. And it was so cool. And I've done probably 30 of them. And right now I have a couple on the book, but I'm, I'm super excited because I'm going to be doing one at the Golf Sanctuary in Brentwood. And there'll be a lot of people there. And really what it comes down to is we pick five varietals. Usually start with a, sh- a champagne sparkling wine. Uh, and new, due to the fact that the uh, event's going to be in Italy, uh, I will I would be like you know maybe really cool if we had an American sparkling wine go against a prosecco, not necessarily go after a champagne, but have done champagne every time, and then move toward a white, maybe this one be a Pinot Grigio or a Chardonnay, and have one from each you know one from America, one from Europe. Then we'll shift to a light red Pinot Noir, a bigger red, a Rhone Valley, a blend of Grenache, Movedry, Syrah, Sensal, all of those things. Most of those wines are found all over the world. The most notable, which is, would be in the Rhone Valley, Hermitage, chateauneuf du Pop, in France, but California has got some really incredible uh Rhone blends, GSMs. So there, and then due to the fact that it's in Italy, uh, we'll be doing a Super Tuscan instead of a Bordeaux, but largely I've done Bordeaux's and Bordeaux blends in America. Those five wines, uh, we, we taste blind. And my, my job as the MC is to talk about each wine without giving it away, And um, it'll be paired with food. And when they do that, they we will have a vote after they've tasted both, not knowing which one is which. Hands will go up, uh, glass A. Hands will go up, glass B. And the winner is America. In my my lifetime, I've been very fortunate to drink some of the greatest wines in the world, and I love the art of winemaking. I hold Bordeaux at the highest level, Burgundy. I love Super Tuscans. I love a lot of Italian wine. I love Brunello's and Barolo's. So fantastic. But it is hilarious to me that every, and I mean every, every one of these events, America has won. And it cracks me up because I would have never guessed that America would win when you're matching up the best wines in the world across the board. And even though I know what I'm drinking, I would probably say that it's 50-50 for me, but I would be I would be surprised to tell you that America is 150% of the time due to my love and a fascination with European wine. But those, those events are phenomenal. If you're interested, uh, I know we got, I mean, it probably makes sense to do it, uh, 10 days in advance. Cause the build up will be, it'll be there all the way up until maybe a day after the event. But those wine events are spectacular. So if you're interested in hosting a Ryder cup wine event, uh, feel free to give me a buzz and reach out to me on my email, uh, or my DMS and love to, uh, put that show on. Cause it is so much fun. And in the world we live in today, where lack of connection is paramount, uh, we're connected more than we've ever been connected social media wise, but never been less connected person to person, soul to soul. These moments, what, what I believe makes wine so spectacular, is that it brings, it elevates a moment, it elevates an evening. And yes, it's alcohol, but it's art. And that art paired with the food creates uh, an environment that entices the brain to open up, communicate, and share. Art does that. Music does that. Humans need that. So think about that. If you're starting to feel a little empty, a little lost, a little vacant... And, it's, and you're starting to feel like a, a level of depression. Fight what you generally are feeling there. You're wanting to seclude yourself because you don't feel good about going out. When in all actuality, you need to step into that fear and get out and get around people. Find an environment that entices you. And get out and open up and fill that cup up. That is what's really going on right now. Depression is at an all-time high because we are at an all-time low in human connection. And these events are just an example, not the only way, obviously. Just an example of placing yourself with others in art, in an environment that opens up the mind to connect and fill that cup up. Thank you for joining me here on The Verge. Thank you for all the people that have uh, sponsored the show and all the people who have followed and follow along and listen each week. I'm very grateful for you as On The Verge as it changed my life. I started this podcast to help others, and little did I know while helping others, I'll be helping myself. Hope you all have a wonderful week. And I will look forward to catching up with you very soon. Have a great day. Are you looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client. From first-time buyers to season sellers. Lisa Gaston has been a Nashville resident for many years. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client services, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place. To learn more about Lisa, follow her on Instagram at Lisa Gaston Homes. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws. On the Verge is produced by Chase Acres. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.